Welcome to Losing a Child, Always Andy's Mom. On this podcast, we journey through the devastating experience of the death of a child. Grief is seldom discussed openly in our culture, and the death of a child makes people feel even more uncomfortable. We approach the topic openly and honestly, speaking to people who have lost loved ones and experts who help care for them. Whether you are a parent experiencing loss or someone who wants to support another going through this tragedy, this podcast strives to offer hope and help. Welcome to episode 44 of Losing a Child, Always Andy's Mom. I'm Marcy Larson, Andy's Mom. Today I get to talk with Mary, Rory's mom. Rory died at the age of three, only a few weeks after she was diagnosed with a very rare cancerous tumor on her heart. Today, Mary and I talk a lot about emotions and how every type of emotion is really okay to feel and nothing should be considered taboo. I guess you can say we talk about the good, the bad, and the ugly of the emotions of grief and the fact that the bad and the ugly are actually good to experience when you're going through grief. It's not something that should be stuffed away and hidden. We also talk a bit about the medical community and how doctors and nurses and medical teams could better support grieving people, especially grieving parents. I want to do a special little shout out today to one of my listeners who recommended that I interview Mary. This same listener also recommended Reed and Dobbs' mom and an additional guest that I'll be having on in a couple of weeks So again, this is a reminder to all of you listeners, if you would like to be on the show, or you know someone that you think would be a great guest on the show, someone who maybe has inspired you in your grief, please email me, let me know, because I would love to talk to as many people as I can and share as many stories from many, many, many encouraging, wonderful parents. I want to thank you so much today, Mary, for agreeing to come on the show and share your story with us. Thank you for having me. It's an honor, really. Great. So why don't you first just start out and tell us a little bit about you and about your child? Yeah. Um, So Rory is my firstborn. She was born on February 11th. 2014. And she came out with just a little bit of fuzzy red hair. (laughs) And uh, myself and my husband both have red hair. So we were waiting upon that to see if she would have the red hair and she did. So that was such a joyous occasion for us. First baby so exciting anyway, right? (laughs) Yeah, she she really was just a light to us even just a moment she came out she just was so sweet and easygoing baby we didn't have a name for her for up until about 15 minutes before we had to leave the hospital um and then we settled on rory which means red-headed king okay so 
Rory, we took her home and we had a dog at home and it was just, you know, a perfect little family and a small little home on some acreage. And you know, the first few months of life is always a trial and error and figuring things out as parents, new parents. And, but she was so easy on us, really, even the, her whole life, she was just easygoing, carefree. She was very cautious, but she always was up for an adventure. She always wanted to be near me, sitting on my lap. Um, I was fortunate enough to stay home with her and raise her. So I know that that's just such a blessing for me. And Rory was so vivacious. Everything that she did, she was all in. It was just, I mean, you could see anytime anyone came into the room, her face would light up and so would theirs. And I just think I'm so fortunate to have had her in my life for those three years to see a love like that and witness you know such a miracle it was the best three years of my life for sure that's so awesome Mm -hmm. so tell us what happened to Rory so Rory was a very cautious child um She wanted to always be in with what, you know, older kids were doing, but she was more of an observer. She would watch from the sidelines, but she was still present. So about, we were planning a vacation to Florida about a week before we were to leave. She just, she came down with the flu, flu, she would throw up um, and it lasted like two days and then it passed. Um, but she just didn't feel like the same child. Mm -hmm. Um, but she wasn't showing any symptoms. So we ended up going to Florida. She wasn't eating as much, but she was still eating. Um, and so I thought it was just residual effects from having the flu. We were at a park in Orlando, just like a, a city park had a playground and she got out of her stroller and started running towards the swings and she just fell real gracefully just fell and so I said oh just get back up Rory you know keep going Mm -hmm. and she let out a shriek a really high-pitched shriek and um, I knew instantly that something was wrong so I came I went over to her and just kind of turned her over on her side and she was paralyzed on her left side, all the way down from her face down to her foot. And so I yelled for my mom, who was vacationing with us, to call 911. They came. Um, they took her to the hospital. Uh, we spent three days there before they were able to perform an echo. And she, they sat me down and said, your daughter has a very large tumor on the right atrium of her heart um, and needs to be removed. So we met with the doctors and came up with a plan to have her survival flighted to U of M, Mm -hmm. which was closer to our home, Um, still two hours away. But we um, had her, uh, I flew with her there from Florida and she 
Was she still paralyzed too? Nope. Actually, that, I was going to say that. Yeah. The doctors believe that she, when she fell, it kind of shifted the tumor mm-hmm. and then she was able to regain circulation. Mm-hmm. So they, at this point, we didn't know that it was um, cancerous, but it did um, after the surgery was performed and they were able to remove as much of the tumor as they could, which was not all of it. They did testing and it came back a malignant tumor. It was deemed undifferentiated, which basically means that they don't know what they're dealing with. Mm-hmm. It's just kind of a mess of cells usually when it's undifferentiated. Yeah. It's really it, hard to try to treat because there's just no organization to it at all. And so it's not like different types of cancers that you normally mm-hmm. know. This works and this works. When it's undifferentiated, it's just a mess. So right, and that's, that's just an explanation to listeners. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Um, it was embedded in her heart. So they didn't, they weren't even quite sure how long it had been there. She was asymptomatic for most, you know, up until before she collapsed. So they just didn't really know what they were dealing with. She did survive the initial surgery, which she was placed on ECMO, trialed off that, and she did great. But about two and a half weeks after her surgery, she started to have a, a really rapid decline. And she started losing motor functions and couldn't sit up, couldn't swallow. She ended up just going into a coma where we gave her medicine to keep her comfortable while she was in a coma. And she did pass away about three and a half weeks later at home. Wow. And and then that's when. That was fast. Whole world. I mean, that was so fast to go from really a normal, healthy three-year-old I mean, how long was it from the from that first collapse? The, from the collapse to her death, it was nine weeks. Yeah. Nine weeks time, which okay. felt like an eternity. But well, and back. a blink of an eye, too. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. It's yeah. both because mm-hmm. it does feel like a long, long nightmare. But on the other hand, it's so, so quick in the grand scheme of things. Right. That's hard to see that. Oh. Mm-hmm. It was definitely, we didn't, and and like many lost parents, we didn't know where to go from there after she passed. We were suddenly thrown into this world of childhood cancer that we knew nothing about. Mm-hmm. Some parents, not that this is any better, but they treat their child's cancer for years mm-hmm. and then they and they know much more about cancer at that point. And we just didn't know anything about it. We we had never had cancer touch our lives. You know, we didn't really have any family that was close that passed from cancer. So it was just very shocking. We had genetic testing done and they said it was just a spontaneous mutation that occurred, obviously from what they could tell. Mm-hmm. They were dealing with a, a tumor that nobody had ever seen before. They searched the world over looking for something. And so we were very lost for a long time. Yeah, I'm sure mm-hmm. you were. And I know that childhood cancer role too, world, that they, you know, you do get a lot of support 
-hmm. in that system, right? I think they do a very good job supporting families when they're going through this at the time. What I think we as a medical community do a worse job is with is after the children die is mm -hmm. that then you are lost. So you go from having all of these resources around you to having nothing. That's and absolutely. in your case, in your case, it was extra bad too, because you were only in it for nine weeks and not even all of those nine weeks you were at University of Michigan. You were just at there for so you didn't even get those relationships that oftentimes develop between other families you mm -hmm. know you didn't have that either so you wouldn't have had that kind of support system that some families end up with you know naturally so when their children die they still have some sort of connections that they can hang on to because it just didn't last long enough or you know I've talked to parents who still communicate with nurses that took care of their right. children as they were sick but you just I doubt you have that right no we didn't we had very little support of people who understood what we were going through because it, it was such a unique situation mm -hmm. um, you know even after Rory passed and I found groups that you know had bereaved parents or even bereaved parents from childhood cancer but nobody I, I've only found one other parent that has had a child pass from an undifferentiated sarcoma. Mm -hmm. And that's just, you, when you lose a child, you, you search for those connections, you know, some kind of connection with somebody that can relate to what you're going through. And it mm -hmm. was so difficult for me to find that. And I think what a resource that really truly helped me and I was very shocked and I don't, I just very randomly signed up for it mm -hmm. and somehow I luckily kept going <laughs> because, you know, I, a lot of times parents just go to one thing or it can be just so emotional draining, but I did end up going to Gilda's club mm -hmm. and I fell into a group of it met on Tuesday mornings and I fell into a group of mainly w widows and widowers. Okay. So it was older men and women that had lost their spouse and, okay. and really the odd man out. <laughs> right. Right. But they, they could just feel for me in a, in a way that other people could not. And I don't know if it was just by me telling Rory's story each week or but they just, I know they felt such connection and the words that they had to comfort me were spot on. And that could have been simply because of what they were experiencing and they were going through, but they, they did such a good job of never comparing our losses mm -hmm. and just really sitting in my grief with me and listening. And that's what I needed. Oh, at that yes. You no. Know? Mm-hmm. I'm so, so grateful that I found that group. Mm -hmm. Because they didn't try to fix it. Mm -hmm. And that's really, really important because you can't fix it. So if you can find people that will accept you and listen to you and try not to fix you, it's so helpful. Mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. I shared very intimate details of Rory's life with them. I've gone to one of their funerals that they have since passed on. And they taught me so much about, because they lost spouses, they taught me so much about marriage and love with my husband, who we, where we were in the midst of a, a chaotic and very deep wounded time of our lives. So mm-hmm. to have that, I didn't even know I needed that at the time, but looking back on it, I mean, it was such a positive experience in regards to our marriage too. Was Rory your only child then at the time? At the time we had, um, our son was one years old. Okay. So that was a whole nother layer to grief. Right. Or, you know. Yeah. And having to still be a mom is, is a blessing in some ways, right? I think when you lose your one and only, then that sense of identity of being a mom, losing that is huge. So Mm -hmm. it is a blessing still to have that. But it's hard because you need time for yourself to grieve, but your time is still very um, in demand, right? Yes, busy. Yes, because a one-year-old doesn't give you breaks. Right, that's right. I can remember laying on our couch in our living room with Brooks, our son, laying on my chest and I just cried and cried, but I had to silently cry because I didn't want to wake him. And that was just, it was felt like torture to me. And I've never been one to um, hide my emotions from Brooks because I think that it's important for him to see that life is full of, you know, um, heartbreak and also joy. We feel lots of joy in our household, (laughs) but, um, but I think it is important. And that's how I've taken on my grief is that I allowed myself to feel every emotion that I was feeling and, and to tell myself and know that that's a valid feeling that, I don't need to sweep it under the rug. I can feel what I need to feel and and simultaneously still love and care for Brooks. Mm-hmm. I think that's really important for grieving parents to know, like, it's okay to not be okay. Yes, yes. And it's okay to have all of these feelings and to not feel like you need to stuff them away. Right. Right. Yes, you need to let people hear you and see you and see it all. That's right. Mm-hmm. That's right. And I know that even for friends and family, it was hard for them. I didn't know it at the time, but looking back on it, it was hard for them to see me suffering. And I think in the past, people have just stepped away slowly yes. <laughs> and, and let that person suffer alone, which it's not what people need. I have, I have had people step away and I don't have a relationship with them anymore, but the people that stayed were, our relationship is so much deeper because they stayed and listened to my suffering 
And that's valuable to, to the person that's grieving, but also to the person who's listening because they can receive so much insight into what is to come because everybody's going to grieve, mm-hmm. right? Everyone grieves. Yeah, it's not something you can hide from. It right. will hit you. It just, you know, and for some people, like your son, right? He's lived with grief for as long as he can remember. Mm-hmm. And others won't grieve until they're, you know, quite a bit older. It's, mm-hmm. I mean, it's a blessing for them, but it will catch up to you at some point in time. Right. And I think it's important that we teach kids even the next generation that it's okay to grieve and it's okay to feel complicated and complex and ironic, even feelings Mm -hmm. that surprise you or that, that stay with you for a lot longer than you wish Mm -hmm. (laughs) because we are creatures of feelings and that's a blessing. And sometimes it can feel like a curse. (laughs) Yeah. But it's okay and it's valid to feel whatever you need to feel. What feeling surprised you the most? Mm. That's a good question. (laughs) I've had so many. I think a very normal feeling, but one that um, surprised me the most is the amount of guilt that I had. Uh And I think that people didn't quite understand why I had so much guilt because I can remember people telling me, but there's nothing you could have done. And that could have been true, but what, you know, what I don't think people think deeper as to, man, I wish instead of going to the mall one day, I would have just spent that time with Rory. Right. Or, you know, I wish that I wouldn't have fed her, so many Doritos, <laughs> yeah. you know, and, and there are so many kids that eat so many more Doritos, but it's, it's those feelings that. Well, then less- on the other hand, you could, you could end up going with, I wish I would have let him let her eat as many Doritos as she wanted. Right. right? Because it, it overall didn't matter. So right. and- it's funny that you could feel guilt both ways. And I bet you felt guilt for both yeah. of the Dorito sides of the Dorito equation. <laughs> Oh, percent. Yes, I felt. And and I would talk, you know, you have these conversations in your head and you try and talk yourself out of it. Like, okay, like you said, like, you know, well, why didn't I give her more Doritos when she wanted them? Right. Um, Because it wouldn't have changed the fact, but it's it's constant. And like, you'll hold on to those feelings and they'll just fester inside of you until I was able to release those feelings. And that's why it's so valid. It's, it's, it sounds crazy, but it's valid. Like those mm-hmm. feelings, to feel them and then to be able to release them. Yes. That's so, so important to be able to re- release those negative feelings. I definitely mm-hmm. have felt that. It was a big relief when I could really release anger. I still feel guilt on and off, but yeah, the... um. But the huge release of the anger was tremendous for me. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I held on to anger for a long time, a long time. I can remember sitting in my house and I remember the thought passed my mind that 
I just wanted to take a baseball bat and swing at every single window in our house until they were completely and utterly gone. Obviously, I didn't do that because I talked (laughs) myself out of it that it would cost a lot of money to repair those. But I can remember wanting to just, you know, take a baseball bat to a window and just letting that emotion go through my body and think, okay, that's okay, Mary, you know, that's okay to feel that way. You probably shouldn't do it, but (laughs) and and I think in the past, I would have been like, whoa, what is wrong with you? You know, nobody should ever take a baseball bat to a, to a window, but mine. So my baseball bat story, because I have the same baseball bat story, (laughs) except I wanted to, anytime I saw a white BMW, which is Mm -hmm. what hit us and killed us. Every time I want to take a baseball bat to any white BMW that I saw. (laughs) I mean, the poor owners of the white BMW would have not known what was going on. But, you know, I was just mad at white BMWs because, you know, and and that was just in my mind. Like, I just want to hit it. Mm-hmm. Although and I did go to the gym, we had this outside portion where they had a big tractor tire, and my trainer gave me a big metal bar, and I hit it so hard. I mean, I just hit it and hit it and hit it, and that was very cathartic for me. <laughs> yeah, and that's so great that you were able to find an outlet. Yeah, right. And, and uh, my girlfriends took me to a boxing place too, so I did that once too. <laughs> I think I need to try that. Yeah, yeah. We could, <laughs> we, could, we still could. We still could. I've Maybe friend, not now. I don't know. But <laughs> I've had a friend that every every Christmas they smash Christmas ornaments. You know, it helps release that anger during the holidays. They smash all Christmas ornaments and then they take a clear Christmas ornament and put some of the smashed ones inside it. Oh, and it's just wow. healing for them to get that out well, that's great yeah I think it's it's important for people to find a healthy outlet obviously not bashing out windows on a BMW <laughs> probably isn't like healthiest yeah probably not healthy and yeah. it might get me arrested so right. yeah <laughs> right so d- did you end up finding other bereaved parents then too I know you started with your group with kind of widows and widowers but mm-hmm Yeah, we actually, we did meet a parent, a couple that had a daughter that was at U of M while we were there. And she was in the hospital her whole life. Um, She lived to be eight months. She actually passed about a month and a half after Rory died. And we stayed in touch with them. And then she had, because she had been in the hospital a lot longer, she had been in the hospital for eight months. She had met other bereaved moms and we had kind of we we formed like a a group of us of seven women that ranged from stillbirth to up to three years old which was Rory and we got together and went for a little mini retreat that um, we planned and we've just stayed in touch and that's been very healing for me just to have that group of women that that I can know face to face, you know, versus virtual, which is also, which, which can also be healing, but, um, we were able to meet face to face. Um, I've met other women that have lost 
children in the area to cancer. A common one is DIPG because it has zero percent survival rate. And I've met with them and, and it's not the same. Nobody's loss is the same. No. I've found out even though I was searching for that, but we all feel deeply for our children and love our children and wish we could change the circumstances, but obviously that's out of our control. And it's just been very healing to have women that can sit with you um, in your grief and are, you know, non-judgmental. Mm-hmm. And that's um, been really healing for me, for sure. Yeah, I feel that way too. It, it I mean, I've gotten to know a lot of women now, but it's sometimes those very first ones, the ones that you especially met in person, Mm -hmm. I think witnessing someone's tears and being able to be with them does give you something special. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I haven't, I haven't necessarily stayed in touch with everyone that I've met along this journey, but there are those that you know, you connect with and, um, but even the ones that I, I don't necessarily talk to anymore, I still think of their children. Mm-hmm. I would still be there for them in a heartbeat. I'm just really grateful for their insight because their losses are different than mine. And it has taught me so much about different losses. And it has just made me a better human in general. Isn't that strange? But it is true, isn't it? Yeah. It really how do you is. feel like how do you feel like you're a better person now? So I've met women that have had stillbirth. Mm-hmm. And I don't think I would have known what to say or do in in that case. I don't know if I would have, you know, I would have known it was a tragedy, but I wouldn't have I would have thought, well, that child was not born yet. They they didn't know that child, but they do. They know that child in their womb. They know, you know, what, what scent they put on their belly when the dads would read books to their bellies, when, you know, they would feel that baby kick and their whole birth story and everything. There's so much more depth to loss, no matter what your loss is, than Mm -hmm. what is visible to just the average eye, I guess. Yeah. Because that love starts the moment you see that positive pregnancy test. That that love starts then. It doesn't start the moment they're born. Right. So, yeah. So I, I'm great. I am grateful in that aspect that Roy has brought me to to see a, a to see stories with a more compassionate eye and to think deeper. It's definitely been challenging, but in a good way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this past week, I actually was asked to speak to third year medical students at a um, at a medical school in Chicago. It was all obviously just remotely because everything's done remotely. That's mm-hmm. it's they normally start seeing patients their third year, and they're not right now because of COVID. So they have this kind of other session. And so I did an hour on, on compassion in medicine and grief and dealing with patients who are grieving. And I think it 
is a good thing. It's something that I certainly never had in my training. And one of the biggest take home points that I said to them was just that, that you cannot fix this and that you are going to medical school because you want to be a fixer and you want to fix things and you want to make it better. And sometimes you can't and you can't fix grief. And sometimes, as in your case, you can't fix a dying child. Mm-mm. You just can't. And they just need to kind of realize that now and how to stand alongside of those parents because that's very difficult for doctors to do. Mm-hmm. How were the doctors with you? Were they always trying to give you the different kind of treatments that you needed to try and the things and staying really optimistic? Or were they walking with you knowing what was going to happen? How did that go? I'm so glad you asked that because our team of doctors, well, not all of them, let me be honest, but the, the main doctors were very honest with us. They were very honest from the get go. We don't know what we're dealing with. This could happen, but this could happen, or this Mm -hmm. could happen, or none of that could happen. Which, looking back on it now, I'm so grateful they were so honest with us. They did give Rory, and this was a total, you know, guesstimate, and they were honest about that too, um, about a 20% survival rate after she had the open heart surgery, which, looking back on it, was probably kind of high, but... I'm sure it was, because we all... We all have this sense in us that we should be able to fix it. And so Mm -hmm. I think we are overly optimistic all the time, Mm -hmm. you know, but Mm -hmm. you want to give parents, you want to give patients hope. You do. And I, I know that. And I still believe that I want to give patients hope, but I don't want to just be so into the fight. Mm -hmm. And I feel like cancer is especially, it's terrible that way. I hate actually that word that you fight cancer because when you're in a war, when they treat it like a battle and a war, then you have winners and you have losers. Mm-hmm. And if you die, if you live, you're a winner. Well, that's ridiculous. It's horrible. It's a horrible way of thinking about it. I just hate it. It's bugged me for a long time, but it really bugs me now with kids. Don't treat yeah. cancer like a war that you can win or lose. It's a I disease, struggled. but yeah. I struggled with that for a long time, seeing other parents that had children fighting cancer that use those words and not, you know, not to any fault of their own because they're going through their own tragedy. I, I understand their thought process behind it, you know, stay positive. Um, And then my child's a winner. Right. But your child dies from cancer, then what, you know, what are we telling those parents Um, Mm -hmm. that their child wasn't strong enough, that they didn't fight hard enough? Yes. Because that's what it ends up going with, right? Because when you go with this whole fighting thing, it's like, you're strong. I know you're tough. You can do this. You can beat it. And it's not their willpower that's going to decide whether they live or die from that. It's not their willpower. Right. Right. And and this can be controversial, but, you know, sometimes there are things in life that are worse And I saw it with my own eyes, you know, I saw Rory's suffering and I didn't want that for her. You know, she didn't deserve that. And so, you know, I'm grateful um, in the fact that 
I do believe that Rory's in a much, 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 much better place now. And, and that's what I want for her. You know, she's, she deserved so much more than we had to give her here um, on this earth. And I'm grateful for that. Um, I think as for the medical professionals, she had one extraordinary doctor in the PCTU that there came a point in time where she was declining so rapidly, but they were still trying different therapies. And he said to us that he never wants to put Rory in a situation that would hurt her without, with him knowing that it would never heal her. And that, that is when we had to decide, are we hurting Rory or are we helping her? Mm-hmm. And, you know, no parent should ever, ever make that call, but we did. And, you know, I just, the and thing. You, people have to, parents have to all the yeah. time. And, and I do, I'm so happy when a parent tells me, that they really had support from the medical community to be able to say, it's okay to stop. Right. It's okay to stop because I've definitely spoken to parents who had to step in and say, we're done. And that's not, not what you should have to do. Mm -hmm. You can't put parents in that spot of having to say it's done. We're, over when it's clear that it is time right but some doctors are not good at knowing when it's okay to just support the families and say give them permission to stop it's just I wish I could tell every doctor to please give permission to parents to say stop instead of feeling like they don't they're not on the same team. Right. Right. And that's the way that you said it was so perfect is that you're giving them permission. You're not saying like you have to stop. Right. Because a parent needs, they're not the medical professional. They don't know, you know, every parent wants their child to live. Yes. um, But they don't want them to live in a way that they're suffering and just holding out for themselves. Really. Most parents, you know, it's the hardest decision I've ever had to make, but I would never put Rory in a position where she's going to suffer. No, no parent wants to see their child suffer in any form of, you know, any form of suffering, whether it's being molested or losing a job or any, any form of suffering. No, no parent wants that, but, and they will go out of their way to help their child but they don't know how to say no. Right. You know, they don't know how to say stop. Right. Even when they, they don't suffering. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And sometimes doctors do, I mean, some doctors do a better or worse job than others. I, I can think back to in my residency training, it was the beginning of the last week of my last year of residency. I remember it specifically. So I was like the senior 
resident in the NICU at the time. And we had a baby born and it was born and it had two significant things wrong that it had there was well maybe there were even more than that but it had an omphalocele which means that there's an opening going straight from there's like an opening in the stomach so the intestines and stuff are kind of in this little sac but they are out of the body so they're not in the body and it also there was also a diaphragmatic hernia which means there's a hole between the chest cavity and the abdominal cavity so actually part of the heart was even sticking out in this little bag okay so if at the time this is now 20 years ago but at the time if you had this omphalocele you had a 50 percent survival rate and if you had a diaphragmatic hernia you had a 50 percent survival rate so the the neonatologist person that was on at the time gave those 50 percent statistics but obviously when you have the two of them together it is pretty much zero there was no real chance of survival and they gave them far higher odds than they should have so this baby was born taken straight back to the NICU the parents were not with them obviously mom had just delivered but dad was not back with us in the NICU and pretty quickly this baby's heart stopped but they had not I mean I feel like it was such a bad situation now because First of all, dad should have been there. They should have just been able to hold this baby. But instead, what happens? Instead, I am trying to do CPR chest compressions on a baby's heart that isn't under a chest. So I'm like trying to compress a baby's heart to get it start going when it's not going to happen, right? It's not going to happen. Mm -hmm. And I remember us all being there like this was done so wrong. Like mm-hmm. this baby did not have a chance for survival. And they, I mean, we ultimately, I was doing compressions. I, I was doing all this stuff. Interestingly, we had another emergency on another baby. So I had to leave my spot there and go take care of another baby. So I wasn't there when they ultimately called it and, mm-hmm. and the child died. But no one was there. What a tragedy that was. That, and that's the biggest tragedy. That's the biggest part of the tragedy is that they were not able to be there and hold their child. That's what should have happened. If you right. have a baby whose heart is actually not even in the baby, for the most part, that is not a child who is going to survive. It's right. not. And Let them their they time. should. somebody should have looked at that after birth and gone, yep, this is not going to happen. Right. Let this mom and dad hold this baby in the minutes I mean maybe an hour I don't even know if the baby lived an hour it was you know it was tragic but they could have held that baby but instead Mm -hmm. they didn't yeah anyway it just it's come it's bothered me but Mm -hmm. never more than after I lost Andy to think of those moments that that family did not have right and that I mean, I know you said that happened like 20 years ago, but I, I know women today that that has happened to and parents today that it it still happens. And I think opening up that conversation about death and dying and um, what that can look like, it doesn't, you know, I, I am a believer and I do believe in miracles. Yeah. 
But I think that there's also a proper way to let people die Mm -hmm. because it is a part of life. Mm -hmm. And that's okay. It's okay that it's a part of life. And I think that it can be beautiful. And and I know that that can be kind of controversial too, but I know that in the women that I have met that have lost children early on or as infants, they were able to create an environment that they were born into where all they knew was love. Mm -hmm. All they knew was their mom and dad holding them and mom and dad bathing them in lavender soap and all these beautiful things and and knowing that they're going to die. But, but I mean, that's what should have happened with that baby. I mean, when that baby's heart stopped and they said, you know, I was told by a fellow or attending or somebody start CPR and I looked at him and I said, how am I supposed to do that physically? I didn't even know how to do that when you don't, when the heart's just exposed like that. I mean, it just felt so wrong. It was just the wrong thing to do on so many levels. Yeah. Still, still. And you have to carry that too. I think, you know, not, not just the parents and, and obviously it's more for them, but yeah. But yeah, I, I think that keeping an honest and open conversation in the medical field about death and dying and more proper outlooks is Mm -hmm. needed Mm -hmm. in the healing process of the parent. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Because that is just so, so important too. You have to think of the mental well-being of this family and Mm -hmm. what they're going to have to live with kind of forever. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It's they have to endure that and and everything that comes with it because you and I both know that you think of every little detail of that time mm-hmm. right oh yeah and so if there's a way that medical professionals can help in that healing process even before you know the death it right. it's huge And I think just to be more comfortable with the whole concept, right? Mm -hmm. The whole death Mm -hmm. and dying concept. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And people in general. How did you feel like people were like your friends? You talked a little bit about the ones that stuck by you and the ones that did not through that process. I mean, those nine weeks, you really knew that you were going to lose her. I mean, the Mm -hmm. chances were always very, very low that you wouldn't how were the people walking beside you and what was kind of helpful and with them I think when Roy was in the hospital we had a tremendous amount of support I mean it was just unreal to us how loved Rory was um Mm -hmm. she received boxes and boxes of books and toys and she had her third birthday in the hospital so um she got tons of gifts and um we got gift cards to go out to eat because we weren't at home and just uh friends visited her and it was during flu season so we had to you know kind of 
which is happening currently, but yeah. just kind of sift people through. But um, it was just incredible the amount of support we received while she was in the hospital. But that was when she was in the hospital. Mm-hmm. And then she died. Yeah. And then grief happened. And people are very uncomfortable with grief. And they don't know how to approach grief and especially child loss. Right. And so we did. We lost a lot of friends a lot. And it's hard for the grieving parent because you're like, well, is it me? You know, I'm, you know, why? Why is it me? Mm-hmm. Well, because you do know you're different, right? Right. Right. You're oh. not the same person you were. Absolutely. Um, mm-hmm. So that's why you feel like, is it me? Because you know, you aren't the same. Mm-hmm. And yet this wasn't what your friends kind of signed up for. So in that way, you feel like, well, it's not really their fault. It's, it's not your fault either. Right. That's absolutely right. And I think that when a parent loses a child, they go on a journey. They go on a journey to find their new self. And some people aren't cut out for that. Some people, like you said, signed up for something else. And that's okay. Because I met other friends um, through loss or other people who have stepped up that I wouldn't have expected but it's a journey so when you're in the thick of it it feels so is is such a secondary loss Mm -hmm. you know once you get further out you can look back and say okay you know that wasn't meant to be I wasn't you know that relationship it took a turn and 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 that's okay but in, when you're in the thick of it, it's so hard. So I would just say for, you know, grieving parents who are new, new to this, you know, you will find your support system. Yes. And it, you're right. You do mourn those losses that you had and those relationships. It is a whole other type of grief. It's like when you grieve yourself. I feel like I grieved Andy and I grieved me. I grieved mm-hmm. what I used to be and who I used to be and who relationships I used to have. But you do, yeah, re- having that realization that you're going to come out with and your relationships will look different, mm-hmm. but not necessarily worse. Just, right. So just knowing that different doesn't mean automatically worse. Right. Actually, I have met some of my closest friends now through loss and at first it angered me because I felt like it shouldn't be that way yeah you know to be having these lost friends yeah um, but now we can sit and we can cry and then in the next five minutes we're laughing and you know have our dark humor and you know it's just and they're the only ones that can understand that dark humor right <laughs> right <laughs> You can say things to those friends that you cannot say to other people. <laughs> you know, and it's just, you know, I'm so grateful. If if it has to, this is what I say. If it has to be this way, which it does because I can't change it. No. Then I'm so grateful that they came into my life. Mm-hmm. And that's to walk true with of you. many things. Mm-hmm. You know, we, oh, we, Six months after Rory died, we bought a piece of land and we built a house and, 
you know, I felt a lot of guilt for that. And I said, but if it has to be this way, I'm going to, you know, do this. We're going to buy land and we're going to start a garden and we're going to do things that are meaningful to us and live with more intention if it has to be this way. Right. Yeah. And that's a nice way of putting it. I, I like that, that you have that little clause in front. If it has to be this way, we will do this. Because ideally, you would say, oh, if it doesn't have to be this way, I will take it all back. If mm-hmm. I could take Rory back, great. That is ideal. Right? Right. You know, right. but you can't say that. So you have to put that little clause in front. Mm-hmm. It just everything, every part of your life just has that little kind of asterisk beside it. Yes. That- yes. I think it's just important that people know, like, your love for your child is never going to leave you, ever. And I think I wish someone would have told me that because I struggled so much early on in grief and still do to this day, being honest. But Mm -hmm. I know that her love will never, ever, ever, ever leave me. She has made me a better more compassionate, more joy-filled person because I knew her. And I, I know that her love will sustain me. That's a beautiful way of putting it because when you're early on, it doesn't feel that way. It feels so much like the sadness and other negative emotions are so overwhelming that the love won't end up being able to cover up for that. I know I think back and I felt like at first I didn't want to let go of that tremendous sorrow that I had and sadness all the time because I felt like if I let go of that, I would be letting go of Andy. And that, my grief, was the one thing that held me to him. It mm-hmm. held us together. It was there, our connection. Was the last connection was this grief. But slowly over the past almost two years, I have been better able to accept the idea, still not fully yet, but better able to accept the idea that that's not what holds me to him. Mm-hmm. My love for Andy holds me to him. And letting the grief kind of come and go and the feelings just accept the feelings as they are and being okay with having some happy times is is the where I need to be in the future and again what you had said about letting all of the emotions just happen is so important so when I have my bad grieving days it's okay and when I have my days that I'm happier and feeling more content and not feeling such heaviness of the grief, that's okay too. That's right. That's right. So thank you again for agreeing to be on and sharing Rory with us. I love talking to you. Yeah, I I thoroughly enjoyed speaking with you today. Very good. Thanks for listening to Losing a Child, Always Andy's Mom. Please subscribe to the show on your favorite podcast player. 
We are always looking for new show ideas. If you'd like to be a guest, know someone who'd be a great guest, or have a show idea, please email us at marcy at andysmom.com. Be sure to visit the webpage, andysmom.com, for more content, including Marcy's blog. There you can also sign up to receive updates via email. Together, let's work to inspire hope, one day at a time.